Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome, Perimeter family, to our Good Friday service. We're sorry that we can't be together, uh, that we're remote, but we believe that the Spirit of Jesus unites us uh, as one, even though uh, we're physically apart at this time. During this Holy Week, we've been following Jesus all the way from Palm Sunday, and we're going to go all the way to Easter. But today is a very special day where we remember Good Friday, uh, the crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. Yet I want us to be reminded that this Holy Week is really part of a bigger story that goes from Genesis to Revelation, and it's threaded by this singular promise that we see in Genesis 3. And when Adam and Eve had fallen, in, fallen into sin, God spoke to the serpent and he said this, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman Eve and between your offspring and her offspring, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the woman shall crush your head and you shall strike his heel. And that promise is gonna crescendo in Good Friday, the, the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're gonna read from scripture, from Mark 15 about that. But before we get into reading that scripture, I wanna recap the the narrative of what's happened from Palm Sunday to this point, and especially from the perspective of the disciples. You know, on Palm Sunday, the disciples were were at a high. Uh, They had come in with other Galileans into Jerusalem on the Passover, preparing for Passover, and they had proclaimed that Jesus was the son of David. That was a messianic title. And, you know, for us, we sometimes don't understand what Messiah means, but for, uh, for the disciples, for a Jew at that time, Messiah meant king. Jesus was king. They were getting ready to crown Jesus as king in Jerusalem. And so what did that mean for disciples? You know, just as Jesus was of the line of David, of King David, and David had 30 mighty men around him, Jesus had these 12 disciples around him, and they were the mighty men of Jesus. And so they were riding high on Palm Sunday. Monday and Tuesday, Jesus is in the temple. He's confronting the Jewish religious leaders, confronting them about their hypocrisy. And so the, the anticipation is just rising in the hearts of their disciples, awaiting the overthrow that's about to happen. Thursday, Jesus brings them apart and they have this private meal, this intimate meal with Jesus. The, the tone of Jesus is very somber, but it might be that the disciples are expecting that they have to somberly prepare for a battle that might be looming ahead of them. But after that meal on Thursday, as high as they were to that point, the, 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 the drop is steep. Because after that meal, Jesus is betrayed by Judas and he's arrested and he doesn't fight back. There's the trials he goes through and he's sentenced to flogging and then crucifixion. So we're going to read from scripture from Mark 15, and and I want us as we hear the scripture to hear it in in these three ways. If you could listen with these three lenses, is listen first to the story of Jesus. As as we hear the scripture, let's hear and experience the pain, the suffering, the sorrows of Jesus. Let's also listen from the perspective of the disciples and experience what utter disappointment they felt as they saw their Messiah dying. But also something unique, if we could also hear what Mark 15 does in parallel to Psalm 22. We're actually gonna read Psalm 
22 in parallel to Mark 15 in our scripture reading because Psalm 22 is often called the Psalm of the Cross. And, and, and that goes through the events of the cross in such a way that it's almost as if Jesus is using Psalm 22 as his meditation, as his prayer, as he goes through the agony of the cross. And so would you listen from those perspectives as we listen to the reading of God's word? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail the king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All those who see me mock me. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Siri, who was coming in from the, from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and from my clothing they cast lots. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. All who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. In the sixth hour, 
it had come. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Might be familiar with the saying that the gap between our expectations and reality that that gap is disappointment. You know, you expect something so great maybe in your life and yet the reality is, is, is down here. And, and that, that painful in between, that painful gap is our disappointments. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say that the disciples were disappointed by Jesus. Uh, you know, they were, again, the mighty men of Jesus. They were there, yes, to, to preach, to teach, to heal, to cast out demons, but they also, because Jesus was king and they were his warriors, they were ready to fight. They were ready to, to wield the sword. And after the Last Supper, uh, the time when Jesus should have been fighting, he was a disappointing king. And so I want us to go through the, the narrative of, of Good Friday from after the Supper in, in five parts to see, especially from the disciples' perspective, of how Jesus was such a disappointment to them. And we're going to see the ways that Jesus disappointed. And first in the betrayal and the arrest. So Jesus is betrayed by Judas. And it says this in, in Mark 14, 47. It says, but one of those who stood by, and this is speaking of Peter, he drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And, and yet what we, what we know that happened is that Jesus stopped Peter and said, Peter, stop, put away your sword. And then Jesus touches the ear of that servant and he heals him. And Peter is, is, is likely thinking in that moment, Jesus, I said I would, I would fight for you. I said I would die for you. What are you doing? Why are you healing him? Why are you giving up? And so Jesus disappointed in his betrayal and his arrest. And, and Jesus also disappointed in his Jewish trials. He's before the Jewish leaders, before the Sanhedrin. He's being falsely accused in all sorts of ways. And yet, you know, just days earlier, he was... He was uh, breaking down the Jewish leaders and their hypocrisy. But in this moment, he's standing silent. He's not defending himself. He gives no defense. And, and Jesus is a disappointment in his Jewish trials. And the next part of the narrative is Peter's denials. And I want us to get into the head of Peter a little bit. I think sometimes we cast Peter as a coward. Uh, but we have to realize that Peter just struck with his sword. He, he wasn't afraid. He was ready to fight. But I think maybe one of the reasons that Peter... Uh, was denying Christ was not just because he had cowardice, that, that definitely might have been there, but it was also because he was deeply disappointed by Jesus. He's realizing in that moment that Jesus is not fighting back. He's, he's actually surrendering. surrendering. And, and Peter might be thinking back to the words of Jesus earlier in his ministry when he said, whoever would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. And, and before to Peter, if he's a mighty man of Jesus, he might be thinking of that as, you know, if, I, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I need to be willing to die. I need to be willing to even be executed on a Roman cross 
to, to follow and fight for this king. But that was what Jesus, or Peter thought before, that he must be a, a mighty man of Jesus willing to die as he fought. But he's realizing that maybe what Jesus meant is that he needed to be willing to die without fighting back. And so as Peter warms himself by that fire, he might be thinking to himself, this is not the Jesus I signed up to follow. And so we see disappointment in, in Peter's dis denials. We see disappointment with Jesus in his Roman trials. His disciples, maybe they're thinking, okay, he didn't show his power to the Jews. Maybe he's waiting until he gets before the Romans, you know, before the Gentiles, before the, those Roman soldiers that are mocking him, before Pilate. And, and now he's going to overthrow our oppressors in a show of power. He said earlier that I can call down a legion of angels. And maybe now Jesus is going to do it. And yet he doesn't. And he disappoints at his Roman trials as well. And finally, he's sentenced to flogging and to crucifixion. And this is the final hope. Maybe, maybe during his flogging, maybe then he'll, he'll, he'll show his power. And yet he doesn't. And, and then maybe at his crucifixion, maybe Jesus will do it, especially as people are, are calling out to Jesus saying, if you're the Christ, come down from the cross so that we may believe. So Jesus, maybe now do it. Now do it when people are calling on you. Instead, the sun grows dark. It's dark all around. And this is what Jesus says. Not a cry of victory, but he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the disciples are hearing that and they're hearing Psalm 22. And they must be wondering, Jesus, why are you saying a psalm of defeat? And Jesus then breathes his last and the fears of the disciples are confirmed. Jesus was not going to fight back. Jesus is not going to use his power. Jesus was not the messianic king they had hoped for. Jesus was doing nothing. Jesus was a disappointment. If I were to make it more personal for us, I could ask this question is, do you have some disappointments in your life? Are there some things that on April 10th that you expected this to be happening in your life? And yet today, the reality is down here. And in between, you have this painful experience that you're bringing uh, to this worship service of disappointment. I know I could speak to having disappointments in my own life. This last year has been filled with uh, some painful disappointments in my life. I, I came here to Perimeter uh, about nine months ago. I came last June with my family uh, from Illinois, came here as a church planter uh, to do a one-year internship, to be equipped to church plant, to go back to Chicago to plant a church. Uh, we had a core team. We had funds that we had raised. And uh, most importantly, the Lord had put a, a vision on my heart that I believe that he wanted uh, us to plant a church in Chicago with. And yet as we came here within the first few months that we we're here, some things happened unexpectedly, things that were outside of my control, things that felt unfair. And as we prayed before the Lord and we discerned, we felt like we had to shut down the church plant. And uh, Thankfully, the, the Lord opened a door. Perimeter is gracious, and we, we found a position to join here at staff, which I'm so thankful for. But I'll be lying to you if I were to say that uh, I didn't experience profound disappointment uh, in, in that experience. Now, in the midst of that, you know, things were getting better. I was here at Perimeter, excited for ministry here in Atlanta, and uh, I started officially February 1st. And, uh, you know, exciting things were happening with ministry. Uh, our family was starting to look for a home to, to settle here and to settle our family. And then a few weeks ago, the coronavirus hits. And we're shutting down a lot of, you know, exciting ministry that we were doing. Uh, the markets have 
crashed. You know, investments have, have gone bad. Uh, the, the, the housing market is, is kind of a mess. And, and once again, we, we feel like we've hit this wave of disappointment. We expected certain things this year. Reality is down here. And in between, we have disappointment. Maybe you could relate, maybe especially in a time like this when the coronavirus has hit us, maybe there's disappointments, things that you expected, yet reality is different in, in areas of your health, your family life, your finances, maybe your business, maybe just goals in your life. So what I want to do is actually I want to invite us to enter together into a time of confession, of honest confession. And the Bible actually invites us, welcomes us to do this, to be honest about our disappointments and to bring them before him. And so we're going to do that together through a responsive confession together. Let me lead us. Father, we come not wanting to pretend anymore and just put on a happy face. You show us in the Psalms that pretending is not the way a Christian prays. Said you show us that you love for us to bring you the raw and honest questions and frustrations, sorrows and disappointments we have all together. So Father, we come now with an honest confession of the disappointments in our life. We confess that reality is not aligned with our expectations. We are disappointed. We're disappointed because we expected that we'd be worshiping you in a building together and we're not. Instead, we're still stuck at home. We expected to be financially secure and safe, but instead we're worried and afraid. We expected more of our goals and plans for our life to have worked out in our family, in our career, in our church, in our ministry, but instead we feel sad and wonder why we don't see more of the fruit we long for. Together, Father, we confess that reality so many times has not aligned with our expectations. And so, Lord, we honestly confess how that leaves us disappointed. Yet, Lord, you teach us in the Psalms not only how to lament and be honest, but also to put our hope in God. So, Father, we thank you that your word says that those who hope in you will not be disappointed. That is a lofty promise, but we trust, Lord, that even when I don't see it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Lord, you never stop. You never stop working. I'd like to ask you to let those words continue to echo. We've been going through this narrative from Thursday night to Friday morning to Friday at noon so quickly. But right now I wanna ask you to stop time. Jesus hangs on that cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The darkness of this God forsaken moment was darker than anyone could have realized. The disciples were disappointed, but not nearly as disappointed as they should have been. They were disappointed because he wasn't the kind of king that they expected, and he didn't use his power to save himself and give them a position of power too. But they should have been far more disappointed because the real reason Jesus was on that cross, it wasn't because he failed to take over Rome. It was because of them. It was because of us. It was because of a sinful world. Even when we don't see it, he's still working. And even when they didn't see it, he was doing his greatest work. The darkness of this God forsakenness is darker than anyone realized in that moment. 
Jesus knew that this was hell itself. It was hell on behalf of all those who were before him. It was hell on behalf of all those who had lived up until this moment. It was hell for all of us who would follow after him. It was our sin that held him there. Jesus and the disciples, they had two very different perspectives of this moment. The disciples interpreted the events of the cross based on the few years that they had been with Jesus and on the Jewish expectation of what a Messiah King would do. But Jesus knew that this was the moment that all of history had been rushing towards. This is not a story that began on Palm Sunday. This is not a story that even began with Jesus's birth. It's a story that's run through the pages of scripture from the very beginning. You might call it a meta narrative. It's the bigger story into which all of our stories find their ultimate meaning. Psalm 22, the words on Jesus's lips as he hung on that cross, they were written a thousand years before then. There are many Psalms in the scriptures that Jewish scholars at that time would have said, these Psalms are prophecies of a coming Messiah. But there's no evidence anywhere that anybody saw Psalm 22 as a prophecy of a Messiah King, because this is not what they expected a Messiah King to do, to die. Yet when Jesus cries out the words of Psalm 22 on the cross, he's inviting us to step back and to take a look at the bigger picture. Psalm 22 is the meditation of his heart, but it also draws us into a much larger story. This bigger story that gives this one an even more significant meaning than anybody in front of them would have realized. Since Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebelled against the God of the universe, sin has always brought death. The pages of scripture and our lives confirm and display that sin always destroys. It destroys this world, it destroys our relationships, and it destroys us. So when Jesus uses the word of David from Psalm 22, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not thinking about the physical pain in this moment. He's not disheartened that he wasn't able to overthrow Rome as the disciples thought. So what's really happening in this moment? It's something in the bigger picture. It's something far more significant than anybody there realized. It is a forsakenness, a forsakenness worse than anybody, worse than anybody could have imagined. God's word explains exactly what happened in Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years before this moment. In verse three, it says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 10, yet it was the will of God to crush him. This is what God forsakenness looks like. The wages of sin is death. This is the darkest moment in the history of the whole universe. The sun itself can't even bear to shine and it goes dark. The creator and the sustainer of the universe, the pure and holy one experienced that God forsakenness on our behalf. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. That death should have been our death. And it should have been the Lord's will to crush, to pour out his righteous judgment on us. This is the bigger story of the whole world. And it includes our stories. And it makes it uncomfortably real and uncomfortably personal. It was my selfishness this morning that put him on that cross. It was my pride on Tuesday. It was our harsh words next week. It was our lust. It was our coveting. It was our greed. It was that thing we did that nobody knows about that is decaying us from the inside. The wages of every sin is death for all of us. But Jesus paid it all. I want to ask us now to move into a time of confession. Personally confessing together our sins and then a time silently to come before him even more specifically. So I'd like to invite you to join me now. Read this together as we confess. Lord Jesus, your God forsaken cross should have been mine. My sin leads to death. Lord, I have sinned against you and others in so many ways. I am guilty and without excuse. I confess that I have sinned in my pride. I have sinned in my lust. I have sinned in my anger. I have sinned in my self-righteousness, my smug sense of superiority, my greed, my gluttony, and my lavish living. I have sinned in the quietness of my heart, comparing myself to others in order to determine their worth and mine. I have sinned in loving myself and hating my neighbor. I have sinned by lying in order to protect myself and to appear more significant in the eyes of others. And I know that in reality, this only begins to name the sin that is in my life. This evening, tomorrow, and next week, I know that I will again do many of these very same things that nailed you to that cross. Lord, I am guilty and without excuse. Forgive me by your mercy. Take some time now silently before the Lord and specifically confessing those things that have put him on that cross. Christian, Christ 
has had mercy on you. Hear the word of God. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Mark knew the end of the Psalm and the end of the story. As Mark wrote chapters 14 and 15 of his gospel, we've seen that Psalm 22 almost provides an outline for all of these events. But did you notice that it's been almost completely in reverse? From verse 18, it's moved backwards in the psalm to verse 1 as the narrative in Mark moves forward. Verse 1 is the most depressing, the most despairing part of this whole psalm. But it's not a psalm of despair. It's a psalm of vindication. It's a psalm of victory. It's a psalm that ends in hope. And Mark knew that. And Jesus, even on the cross, he knew that too. Mark has been giving us hints. He's been lifting the veil of darkness throughout the narrative to give us a peek at the light that darkness can't overcome. As we just heard, Psalm 22, verse 27 says that all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. The ends of the earth is pointing to the people outside of the Jewish faith. It's the whole world that would come and know who God is. The centurion in front of the cross, he probably wasn't Jewish. He was probably a Roman citizen. And yet he is the only one in this narrative to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark didn't quote Psalm 22 again, but he's giving us a real living picture that this Psalm is fulfilled right now because the ends of the earth are turning to the Lord. Mark is telling us what the disciples and the onlookers see as the dark despair of Psalm 22, verse 1, is actually a hint of the victory of the Lord at the end of the psalm. We mentioned Romans 6 before, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. We read Psalm 53, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement, that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. Jesus didn't fulfill the disciples' expectations. He exceeded them. He fulfilled far more than they expected, but in a way that they didn't expect. Their expectations, they weren't high enough. Reality was far better than what they could have hoped. 
He didn't come to be the next king of the Roman Empire. He came as the king of the universe. He didn't defeat the Roman captors. He defeated the sin that has enslaved us since Genesis chapter 3. What seemed to be utter defeat to the disciples, what seemed to be that final strike of the crafty serpent, none of it was the end of the story. What seemed to be utter defeat to the disciples, what seemed to be the final deadly strike of the serpent, none of it was the end of the story. Psalm 22 has helped us see that the story was much larger than just the events of Mark 15. And Genesis 3 helps us to realize that this is the moment that all of history has been racing towards. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise that is fulfilled here. God curses the serpent, the evil one himself. And in that curse, God makes a promise to the evil one and foretells the cross. The Lord said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From Genesis 3 to Matthew chapter 1, the people of God have been waiting for this descendant of Eve who would finally destroy the serpent. When God tells the evil one, you will strike his heel, he's talking about the death of Jesus on the cross. The disciples thought it was defeat. The evil one thought it was his victory. But none of them could see the bigger picture that God was writing throughout all of history that was fulfilled in the cross. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. And it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. The Lord God said to the serpent, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.